Well, we're back in the book of James this morning, James chapter 2, and I invite you to open up a type of Bible, a type of scripture to get to James chapter 2. As you remember from previous weeks, we've studied chapter 1 already, and we've seen that James says very clearly, difficult times will come for all people. And for believers, we shouldn't be surprised by these difficult times, but we can instead take them as an opportunity to grow personally and to find joy in what God's going to do in our lives. Not only will there be external trials, James says there will be internal trials, temptations that we're going to have to face, but we can overcome and we can experience victory through God, even in these internal trials. God, the source of all goodness, but the God that is a very practical God and wants us not only to hear the word and to receive the word, but also to do the word. And so today, as we get into James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, we see some very practical advice. Very um, useful advice for us today. James chapter 2, verse 1 my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Brothers and sisters, don't hold the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there in the Greek, it's literally our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Jesus is our glorious one. Don't hold this faith with partiality. Don't be biased in your face, in your faith. The word there for partiality in Greek is prosopolempsia. I had it perfect in my practice, but of course, I try and say it here, it doesn't work. Prosopolempsia. This is literally, a, it's a Greek literal translation of a Hebrew phrase that basically means lifting up the face or lifting up the countenance, which originally had good and bad connotations. It's a good thing if someone's discouraged to lift up their face, lift up their countenance. But by the time we get to the, to the time of the New Testament era, it was used to indicate that you were being partial to one particular person. You were biased, you were prejudiced for certain groups of people. And so James says, don't let this faith, this faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't hold it with partiality. Don't be biased in your Christian experience. And then we get an example. For if there should come into your assembly, and that's the word synagogue, only time that synagogue is applied to a Christian setting in the New Testament, which some have suggested means this was written very early on. Um, but others have suggested this, the word synagogue, the, the, the literal structure of the synagogue was not only used for worship, but it was also used for judging for a court proceedings. Uh, and so whatever the case may be, when somebody comes into your gathering, whether for church or for a trial, if a man comes in with gold rings in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and to the poor man, you stand there or sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
James says a very practical example. Somebody rich, and they're obviously rich because of what they're wearing. They've got the nice clothes on. They have nice rings on. In those days, the wealthy would often wear rings on every finger except for the middle finger. Uh, and if they were going, if you were going to go to some special event and you wanted to look extra rich, in those days they had ring renters. You could rent a really fancy ring to make yourself look even more impressive. Uh, by the way, uh, Clement of Alexandria, who was one of the church fathers, he, he was born in 150 AD, he said, don't do all that stuff. If you're going to wear a ring, wear it only on your smallest finger, and if it's going to be a ring, make sure it has a religious symbol on it, like a, like a, um, like a fish, for example, so that it could be used for a seal. Uh, so the early Christian church, they were shunning this practice of making yourself look um, rich and impressive. And uh, of course, today, we can do this through any number of ways. Just the very phone that you might have could be something we use to impress, or what you drive, or uh, any number of things. So a rich person comes into the assembly, and then a poor person, somebody who is not dressed nicely. Um, their clothes are disheveled, their clothes are dirty. And there's a tendency in our hearts, and James was warning against the tendency in those days, to give preferential treatment to the person who was rich. There were some seats in the synagogues that were better than others, and he was saying, it, don't offer the person who's rich the best seat. Don't make the poor person sit on the floor between the good seats. Don't make the poor person stand in the back up against the wall. Treat them both as equals. And by the way, James is not counseling us to, to overdo it and turn into Robin Hoods where we steal from the rich to give to the poor. He's not saying that we favor the poor over the rich. He's saying we need to treat everybody equally. Treat everyone with the same love and respect. You see, in the, in the early Christian church at that time period, what was being taught here, the gospel of Jesus, which taught that everybody was the same, this was like culture shaking. Uh, because in those days, there were big disparities between the rich and the poor, and between the haves and the have-nots. And the church was the only place where everybody was viewed as equal. There was no caste system in the church. And James is trying to preserve that. And it must have been a little bit awkward initially because you've got people who are rich and wealthy and they have servants. But when you walk into the church and you sit down... The master and the servant were totally equals. They could take communion together as equals. They could sing praises to Jesus together as equals. The rich and the poor, there was no distinction, and James was wanting to make sure that that was preserved. The early Christian church had a lot of persecution that they endured, a lot of lies spread about them. But one of the things that helped silence the critics was how loving they were towards others how practical they were. They fed the needy. 
Uh, they found people who needed to be buried. Burial was expensive. And they would take up a collection so that everybody could have a decent burial. Uh, they proved that Christianity caused moral superiority in their day, and it helped them to survive in those early days. The people really did know that they were followers of Jesus by the love that they expressed. And I'm sad to say, in today's culture, it's not always the case that the secular world looks at Christianity and says, wow, what they believe is truly causing them to be more loving, is truly making their characters more noble than ours. But that's what was happening in the early church. They embraced this pure faith of Jesus. And James is trying to preserve that. And he's wanting to make sure that everybody is treated the same no matter what they had on them, no matter who they were. And then he explains a little bit more. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not, do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? He's reminding them God has, has blessed the poor. He's called the poor. Not that God favors the poor, but even Jesus himself said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Or blessed are you poor. There is often a correlation between not having much in life and having a stronger faith in God. When we don't have much, we don't have much to rely on, and so we have to rely upon God. There are certain blessings that we can receive and are more prone to receive when we don't have much in this life. And God has always, throughout Scripture, called us to look after those who are poor. And James reminds us that, hey, the, the ones that are doing the most harm in society are the rich people. Later on in chapter 5, verse 4, he's going to re remind them about how the rich, they're the ones that are holding back the wages from the people who've mowed the fields. Uh, here in these verses, he's saying, they're the ones that are dragging you into courts. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 15 experienced this, rather, Acts 16. He was dragged into court, not by the poor, but by the rich. In fact, it says there in verse uh, 6 and 7, verse 7, do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you are called? It wasn't the poor who were, who were taking down the name of Jesus. It was the rich who were blaspheming the name. And in Acts chapter 13, we find another example of that, of the rich people who were causing the name of, of Christ to be cast down. And certainly this is not the case of all rich and wealthy people, but James is reminding them, hey, don't favor the rich. Remember what the rich have been doing in your society. Remember, we need to love all equally. All should be treated fairly. All deserve a seat at the table. 
So I want to pause just for a few moments, minutes, and, and think about our own experience. How is it with us? How do we do when we interact with different people, people that are not the same as us? Do you have any biases? Do you have any prejudices in your life? Are you guilty of this kind of unjust favoritism? Naturally, a lot of us are thinking, well, no, I'm not biased, I'm not prejudiced, I'm not a racist. And I hope that's genuinely the case for you. But what I've learned as I've studied my own heart is that it's so easy for me to have unconscious biases. Things that I didn't even realize were there that exist. You know, just a, an interesting example, we're in the political season as we're gearing up for an election. Statistically, candidates who are taller tend to be elected more than candidates that are shorter. Is that because you have to be tall to be a good leader? No. There's nothing that makes me being 6'3 a better leader than my wife that's 5'9. Uh, has nothing to do with height at all. Uh, in fact, I think she's a really good leader. <laughs> better than me in many ways. Uh, that's why the Lord put us together. And make a good team. But you could be four foot two and be a fabulous leader, a fabulous president of our country. But for some reason, our society is biased into seeing leadership potential as correlating with your height. Very simple bias, but something that's pretty profound and powerful. If you see somebody walk into church or into wherever you're at and they've got a MAGA hat on, are you more likely to treat them positively? Are you going to have negative feelings towards them? If they're Republican, if they're Democrat, if they're Communist, are you going to treat them differently? Do you have any biases, any biases in your life? We often have biases uh, depending on similarities or differences. A friend of mine mentioned that she's an only child. And when people find out that she's an only child, they're like, oh. And she's not always sure what that means, but there's some sort of a processing in their minds going on. And, and sometimes people are treated differently just because they're an only child. Do we look down upon people who don't hold the same beliefs that we do. In Adventism, we talk a lot about the papacy of the Catholic Church as it fits into our understanding of Bible prophecy. And it is really easy when somebody says they're Catholic for these little red flags to go up in our mind and think, uh-oh, and we start to think negative thoughts. I tell you what, my mom's next-door neighbor is Catholic, and she is the nicest person uh, She's just the best neighbor to have. She's a better neighbor than I am. Um, do we allow differences to cause bias in our heart? What about appearance? We judge people based on appearance, body type, not just height, but 
their weight, their skin color, their hair color, how attractive they may be. A relative of mine shaved her head in, in memory of her last chemo treatment. She's a girl. It, it looked different for people, and they started spreading nasty rumors about her, not even bothering to ask why she had shaved her head, and they created this bias, this prejudice. It was very hurtful. Uh, it's interesting to note that attractive quarterbacks in the NFL get paid more. Um, attraction is largely a product of facial symmetry, studies have shown, and quarterbacks that have more facially uh, symmetrical faces, that was a, a redundant phrase, but you get the idea, faces that are more symmetrical, they tend to get paid more than quarterbacks whose faces are not symmetrical. And is that because having a symmetrical face means you can throw the ball better than someone who doesn't? Obviously not. Obviously not. But for some reason, we tend to elevate people who look more symmetrical. Whether you realize it or not, it's, it's almost guaranteed you have biases in your life. I have biases. First step is for God to help make us aware of them because we want to treat everybody the same. In medicine, it's been documented. Uh, they looked at over 20 years of studies and it's been documented that doctors tend to pre prescribe less pain medication for African Americans than they do for white people in the same exact instant. If you're black, that means you have on average a 22% less chance of receiving pain medication than someone who's white for the same malady taking you in the hospital. Unconscious biases, but powerful implications, ramifications. Sexism is something that's obviously um, well documented in our society. Ageism. It seems like sometimes we overlook those who are old or those who are young. But the Bible says we can find wisdom and important in, in everybody, no matter what their age is. Are you biased towards people depending on what their sexual orientation may be? Does their wealth or social status make any difference to you? Sometimes people who are really educated look down on people who are not as well educated. And sometimes the opposite's true. People who are not well educated look down upon those who are well-educated. Are you getting the idea here? We could probably go on a, a long time. The big idea is there are all sorts of ways that we can be biased. All sorts of ways that we can unconsciously treat certain groups of people better than other groups of people. But the Gospel says the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The Gospel says we cannot treat people differently. We need to treat everyone with the same love and respect that Jesus treats us. They will know we are Christians, not by our biased attitudes and behavior, but by our love for one another. So James says, don't let it be. Don't let it be among you. Verse 8 if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
the royal law, the law that is coming from our king of kings, the law of love that is higher and above all laws. If you really want to fulfill that law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, if you let bias impact how you treat people, if you let prejudice impact you, you commit sin. Racism, prejudice, is a sin. And God says we need to treat everybody with the same love and respect. First step, ask Jesus to reveal to you where your prejudices lie. Where are your biased thoughts and feelings and attitudes? Become aware of them and, and then ask God to give you true repentance for these things. You know, I found that through simply talking to people who are different than me, I have a better respect and appreciation for them. I may totally disagree with them, but I can come out of a conversation appreciating with more respect and more love for someone than I did before. I remember one time in high school, God assigned me to sit next to this girl that I did not like, and it was for probably about a month during chapel. Every single day I had to sit next to this girl I did not like. I didn't know why I didn't like her. I just knew that I didn't like her. But as I spent time talking with her, I realized, hey, she's not who I thought she was. I'm the one that had the problem. And it totally changed how I felt about her. Are you willing to let God change your biased attitudes behaviors, actions, and ideas. James says it's essential. James says it's a sin to not let God do that changing work in your life. And we might think, oh, it's just a small thing to have this little prejudiced thought. It's just a small thing to, to favor some groups of people more than other groups of people. Uh, and, and this isn't to say that you don't naturally gravitate and hang out with people. Like, for example, I like to rock climb, and so I prefer to hang out with people who like to go climbing, because then I can climb with them. Um, at least, that's one subset of my friend groups. That's okay to have certain preferences like that. But I'm not going to treat my rock climbing friends with more dignity than my non-rock climbing friends. I'm not going to show them more respect and love than people who don't participate in those behaviors. It's not a small thing to, to have this um, unhealthy bias, this unhealthy favoritism. Because look at verse, what verse 10 says. For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet stumble in how many points? Just one. They are guilty of how much? Of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. The law is, is kind of like a, a pane of glass or a window. If you break it in one area, you've broken the whole thing. It's not that some sins aren't more harmful to the world than others. It's probably less harmful to... Um, steal a piece of gum than it is to murder a million people. 
but it's still a sin. And it's still something that would cause Jesus and did cause Jesus to go to the cross and die for us. And so, and so we shouldn't just excuse ourselves because we have seen sins that seem smaller than other sins. Any sin, unrepented, any sin that we allow to grow in our life is enough to ultimately cause us to separate ourselves from the one who can give us life, from the one who can give us salvation. We aren't saved by our works. Of course not. We're saved by the works of Jesus. But if we allow sin to dwell and grow in our heart, it will cause us to separate ourselves and not even ultimately want to be with the one who saves us. So the whole law is broken when we break even just one part of it. So what's the conclusion of this passage, verse 12 and 13? So James says this, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Remember that there is a judgment ahead. Thankful that Jesus can cover us and cleanse us, but remember there is a standard. And it's not a law that, that binds us and restricts us. It's a law that gives us freedom. We saw that in chapter 1. It's a law of liberty, and those who choose to obey it are freed from the burden of sin. Verse 13, For judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's not that we'll be saved if we're merciful. But if we've been saved, we're going to start to be more merciful. If we've truly accepted Jesus into our lives and his love and realized how far we've been saved, how far we've been brought back from the pit of destruction, and how many times he's forgiven us for what we've done, it's going to do something in our hearts that's going to want us, help us to start to extend that same love and forgiveness to others. And of course, as we've said before, forgiveness doesn't mean there are no consequences. Forgiveness doesn't mean setting up healthy boundaries. But forgiveness means we're choosing to let go of the hatred that has bound us. And by doing so, we are keeping the law that sets us free. Remembering that ultimately it's God's mercy that will cleanse and forgive us for all of our sins. Mercy will triumph over judgment in our life and in the lives of all who accept the, grace, the gracious gift of Jesus. So James wraps up this segment of his letter and he reminds us, treat everyone with love and respect. No matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what they believe, no matter what uh, your circumstances may be, everyone deserves the same love, the same respect. In his autobiography, Gandhi wrote about a time when he was a student early on in his life. He'd been studying the Gospels and he'd been realizing just how powerful the message of Jesus is, how powerful it is uh, an equalizer in society. 
and he thought, this is a message that could change the caste system in India. This is a message that could help level the ground in my country and help people treat everyone with love and respect. And so one Sunday, he decided to go to a church. He entered the doors of this particular church. He wanted to speak with the pastor after the service was over, but he was stopped at the entrance by the deacon. And the deacon stopped him, and he said, why don't you just go and worship with your own people? The deacon had prejudice in his heart, and it was spilling out into that moment. He saw Gandhi, who looked different than the people in the church, and he said, no, 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 I think you should go worship with your own people. Gandhi left the church that day and never returned. He said, if Christians have caste differences also, I might as well remain Hindu. Think about what happened there in that moment. This wasn't just one soul being turned away from Christianity. This was one person who had the power to influence millions for Jesus. And because of the small sin of prejudice, millions of people potentially didn't hear about Jesus that could have. Weren't influenced by this great influencer because of that one sin, that one bias, that one prejudice. Well, we can't change the past. We can change the present and the future. I don't want to be that deacon. I don't want to be that Christian that causes Christ to look bad in the world. I don't want to go through my life thinking I have no prejudice, thinking I have no bias, thinking I have no favoritism for certain groups of people, and in reality, I'm unwittingly turning people away from the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be a hearer and a doer and a receiver of the Word today, I challenge you this afternoon, in your heart, even just now, pray and ask God to reveal to you, your own internal bias. When God reveals these things to you, ask Him to help remove it. Take steps to get to know people who are different from you. Learn to look at people with the same love that Jesus looks at you and me with. Let's change our hearts with the power of the Holy Spirit, letting Him change us and let's make a difference in our world this day for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to do a big work in our hearts. It's one thing when we're aware of our prejudices, our biases, it's another thing when we don't even realize we have a problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory. None of us are perfect, Lord, but we want to be made more perfect through your Holy Spirit. We want to grow and be more sanctified and more loving and more accepting. Expose who we really are 
as painful as that may be, uh, if we find ourselves engaging in biased behavior, prejudiced behavior this week, Put on the alarms in our heart, Lord, so that we can stop and so that we can do things differently and see people as you see them. We're going to need your Holy Spirit to help us with this, Lord. It's not easy, but we're thankful and we're confident that you will continue the good work that you started in our hearts until that great day when you return and take us to our heavenly home. This is our prayer, and this is our hope and glorious expectation, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a happy Sabbath, and go love people for Jesus.